Am I on? Yes? When I first saw an article about this man, whom they call the forest man of India, I wanted to understand what kind of challenge this guy was up to. And as I started to look and, and read his story, I found out he lives on a river island in India, the largest river island in the world. There are 170,000 people that live on this island, not a small island by any means. And this island in 1960 was 270 square miles. And as the river has eaten away at the land, it's now half of its size today. It's now 135 square miles. And this man, the forest man of India, 39 years ago, decided he was going to look on this challenge. He saw his homeland being eaten away, literally, and he was going to do something about it. He was going to plant one seed, one sapling in a barren part of his island every single day. And as I read, I wanted to know what kind of person looks at a challenge that's so overwhelming in the face and decides, I am going to do something about it. It's a remarkable story. You know, when I think about overwhelming challenges in my life, probably one of the ones on top of the list is sharing my faith. It's overwhelming. It's absolutely intimidating. And I think one of the reasons why I have a problem, why I'm scared to share my faith, is because I don't have all the answers. I'm afraid somebody's going to ask me, why does God allow suffering? Or, you know, why does something else happen? And I just don't have the answers. A couple of months ago, as with a group of friends from work, and we were going to go out and we were going to interview a guy that ran the small company, bioscience company, and this guy was doing amazingly well. Leveraged his technology, selling all over the world, had been successful, and I think the company was maybe 15 to 20 years old, and based in Greater Rochester. So we decided, I work for a company, publicly traded, big box company, four of us decided we were going to go, we're going to find out what this guy is doing, his business model, ask him his story, what's his magic, basically. Everybody wants to find that out in the business world. And then we're going to debrief, and then, of course, we're going to do it. So we go out, we interview this guy, we see what he's doing, and he has an amazing company, amazing growth, and we get to the end of our time with him, and we say, basically, what drives you? What's your secret? What's the magic? And this guy clearly lays out God in his life and how his motivation is centered around living a godly life, doing what God wants him to do. And the result is what has happened to his business. And I want you to understand, there's four of us in that room. I'm the only Christian of the four of us. One of them would say that they grew up Catholic in the church, Catholic church and then has fallen away. The other one is, which is a dear friend of mine, clearly anti-church or any kind of or. Uh, uh, organized religion. I don't know what the background is, but he's clearly anti-church. And then another one who is okay, probably never been to church in the last 10 years, okay with God. You know, doesn't have anything wrong or anything right in his belief about God, just feels like, okay, I'm, I'm ambivalent. So the, the four of us get together after we meet with this guy, we're having lunch and we're talking shop and talking about what we learned about the business model. And the girl who grew up in the Catholic church in the middle of this restaurant, looks up to me and says, Sherwin, help me understand something. I'd love to talk about this later. How can somebody who is an engineer or somebody with a scientific mind actually believe in the Bible and the account 
of creation. And about 5% of me was honored that they thought, that she thought, that I would have an answer to such a difficult question. And 95% of me wanted to pick up my book and run and hope that she never remembers that she was going to ask me this. And so I'm, I'm scared, I'll be honest, to share my faith because I don't have all the answers. The other reason I think I'm scared to share my faith is because when people share their beliefs and they're pushy, they're not well respected. And I like to be liked. I don't want to be viewed as pushy. I want to have people's respect. There was an interesting factoid in a book recently written. The book was called The Day America Told the Truth. They did interviews all over the country, several states, every slice and dice section of life. And they came up with all these random and interesting facts. And there's one paragraph in that about trust and integrity that caught my eye that was really interesting. Here's what it says. The book tells how Americans ranked professions according to their degree of integrity and honesty. Televangelists, known mostly for asking money, ranked below lawyers, sorry if you're an attorney, politicians, car salesmen, and even prostitutes. Out of 73 professions, only organized crime and drug dealers scored lower than televangelists. I don't want to be viewed as pushy. John chapter 9 that we're studying today has a remarkable story about a man that meets Jesus. His life is transformed and he tells his story. And I believe we can learn a lot from this guy in John chapter 9 about how we tell our story and we share our faith. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 9, verse 1 to 7. And this is Jesus walking along with his disciples. And as he's walking, he meets a man that is born blind. And John dedicates an entire chapter of the Bible to this incident, to this miracle, this encounter with Jesus. And it's probably the only miracle that Jesus does for somebody who was born or stricken with something like this. So let's read verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming. No one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. The word, this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And the question that the disciples asked is a theological conundrum that was in that day. And the Jewish thought, the Jewish theology was that if you were born with some kind of sickness, either you as an infant did something wrong, sinned in the womb, or your parents sinned. And so as the disciples see this man, they are more interested and they see him as an object of theological curiosity. But what Jesus sees is a man in need. Jesus quickly says, neither of these are true. 
This man is blind so that the glory of God might be revealed. I am the light of the world. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus will make an I am statement seven times. And as he does that, he illustrates it. You'll remember when he says, I am the bread of life. Hopefully the miracle of feeding the 5,000 or 4,000 comes directly to your mind. Every time Jesus says, I am something, he illustrates that. And so in this passage, he says, I am the light of the world. And he will illustrate that as we will see more than once, more than one way in the passage. And so Jesus says that, and then he simply spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes, and the man is not healed. He tells the man, go and wash. The man goes and washes. The man has not seen Jesus. He doesn't know what it's like. He knows his voice. He goes and he washes, and instantly the miracle in absentia occurs, and the man is able to see. And so he goes back to his home crown, his neck of the woods, where people know him. And in the rest of the chapter, we see five different conversations that happen. And the first conversation is between the man and his neighbors. This is where he grew up. Everybody knows him. They saw him. They saw him playing outside in the yard, maybe climbing a tree. Maybe, maybe he didn't climb a tree. Whatever he was doing, they saw him doing it. And they say, there's a controversy. They say, this is the guy. And then some people say, no, this is not the guy. And then some people say, yo, this is the guy. And there's an argument about whether this is the blind man. And so finally they come to him to say, are you the guy? Because we don't know his name. It's not in the chapter. And he says, I am the guy. <laughs> and so he tells his story. They said, what happened? He says, listen to this in verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. He tells his story for the first time. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. <clears throat> Since this has happened, they now take him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the great theological minds of this Jewish age. There's about 6,000 of them in the area. And their job is to interpret the oral law. Everything that the rabbis have said about the scriptures, they're the ones that are charged with interpreting it and telling people how to think theologically. And so they bring him before the Pharisees. And what's surprising is that the Pharisees are not fascinated or amazed that the man can see. What they're fascinated by is the fact that somebody spat on the Sabbath. Because in their oral tradition, if you spit, that spit might roll downhill and create mud. And if it creates mud, it's work. And it is forbidden to work on Sabbath. So here they see this man, he's telling his story, what happened, and they're fascinated by the fact that somebody spat on the Sabbath. And he talks about Jesus, and there's now two points of view of Jesus in this crowd of people that arises. The first point of view is that Jesus cannot be from God because he's broken the Sabbath. If he's sinned and broken the Sabbath, there's no way that he can be from God. And there's another point of view, and the second point of view is, how can you heal somebody and give them sight unless you are from God? And so there's these two points of view going. And so finally, after arguing back and forth, the Pharisees are going back and forth. They say to the man, they ask him to tell his story one more time. And I said, well, he healed you. Who do you say he is? 
Remember earlier he said, well, he's the man Jesus. Now he says in verse 17, he is a prophet. The man's thinking, relationship, encounter with Jesus already starts to change. And so the Pharisees are in doubt. They don't want to believe what's happening. So what did they do? They want proof. So they said, okay, bring in this guy's parents. Let's see if this is the guy who we think he is. So they bring in his parents to investigate whether this is actually the blind man who's been healed. And the parents come in and they ask them two things. They said, parents, first thing we want to know, is this your son? Second thing we want to know, how did this happen? And the parents decide they're going to answer one question, but not the second one. So they say, yes, this is our son. This is the guy. This is our son. But he's of age. We don't know how he was healed. He's old enough. Why don't you ask him yourself? And his parents, in verse 22, John 9, 22 says this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. There was a ban on Jesus and anybody that believed or followed him. And in this way, you will see how Jesus again says he is the light of the world. Because let me explain to you, a ban from the synagogue. It's not like today where if you don't like a church, you don't like a school, you may go down the road, you have a private school option, you may go to another church. In this day, you did not have a choice. If you were banned from the synagogue, you were excluded from Jewish life. You could not trade, you could not buy, you couldn't talk to your neighbors, you couldn't even talk to your family. In certain cases, you would be excluded from being with your spouse. And listen to how this ban would occur. When a person is expelled from the synagogue, there is first a 30-day period where no one is allowed to approach the person. Not neighbors, not friends, not even family. It would be as if they had leprosy. At the end of the 30 days, if they have not repented of their offense, it would be proclaimed in the synagogue at the time of the pronouncing the curse, lamps and candles were lit, which at its conclusion were extinguished to express that the person was excommunicated and excluded from the light of heaven. It is to this man that Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And the next conversation that happens after the parents say, go ask him, is the man. And this is where I think we learn from the blind man how we share our faith. They ask him again. So verse 24, a second time they summon the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God, which is their version of saying, tell the truth, the whole truth, the nothing but the truth. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And the blind man's story, the formerly blind man's story, gets simpler and simpler. He says that he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't know how it happens. He doesn't understand how a sinner can heal him. He doesn't know whether spitting on the ground is illegal on the Sabbath. But in verse 25, this is what he says. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I 
see. I was blind, but now I see. And I suppose that many of, our, uh, of us have those life-changing experiences where we don't have the answers to all the questions in the world, but God has changed your lives. Maybe he's changed your marriage. Maybe he's changed your relationship with your kids. Maybe he's dug you out of a financial hole. Maybe he's repaired your life from addiction. Whatever it is, you have that story. You have that life change of what God has done for you. And it is the one thing that you know that is absolutely irrefutable to this world. And so here is my main point. The best argument for life change is the evidence of life change. The best argument for life change is the evidence of life change. And so Jesus, so the blind man experiences Jesus and he tells them, this is the one thing I know. And so later on in the passage, the man is excluded. He's banned from the synagogue and he's out on the street and he meets Jesus for the first time face to face. And he's not even sure who he's meeting. And here's the encounter. Jesus says, do you believe in the son of man? He answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen it, seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man's view of Jesus changes from he's a man to a prophet, and then finally, he is Lord. And I think there are three lessons, three points of applications that we learn from this man's simple story that he's told over and over and over again. And the first is this, when it comes to sharing our faith, be ready. Be ready to share your story. I have a friend, he's, he's a Muslim guy, and I've known him for a couple of years. We've, we've done, you know, things in different places. We've worked together, and I know his family. You know, we're past the point of chit-chat. We've talked about Ramadan. I've talked about my, my kids, my wife, and he's grown up in a Muslim country. He works in a Muslim country. His entire world is that. And last year, I'm getting together with him, and I'm chatting. I hadn't seen him in about a year, and I'm transparent with him. I'm not pushy. And out of the blue, he says to me, you know, Sherwin, the last time I was in Houston for training, I was there by myself in a hotel, and I showed up on a Sunday, had a rental car, and I decided, I'm going to go to church. I want to see what church is like. I, was, I always hear about church, and I, I've never had the opportunity. So he's here just for a week in the U.S. So he said he dro drove to church in Houston, came back, and I said, wow, I was so surprised. I was caught off guard. I didn't know what to say. I said, what did you think of it? He's like, I loved it. And I go, what did you like about it? Was it the preaching? And he said, no, it wasn't the preaching. Sorry, Rob, if you're here. He's like, everybody welcomed me. I loved it. It was like a rock star. It was like an NBA star. Everybody welcomed me, high five. I, I just felt so welcome. And I said to him, I thought quickly, okay, I need to be ready. I said to him, the next time you're in town, in Rochester, would you like to come to church with me? And he goes, absolutely. Be ready to share your faith. Be ready to share it over and over again. The second thing I think we learned from this blind man 
is to be bold. So be ready, be bold. And when people ask a personal question, they typically expect a personal answer. We don't need to be pushy. But if we have personal relationships with people where we're asking personal questions, they're asking personal questions, they expect a personal answer. A couple years ago, about five years ago, I think my wife and I started thinking about a third child. And at that time, we already had two bio kids. We got convicted. God had stirred in our hearts to think about adoption. And so we started looking into it and going along this journey. And I would say after two or three months about, you know, about thinking about it, we got to the point where we more or less thought, yeah, we, we should really move ahead with this. But I think my wife's reservations was the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? If we choose somebody, somebody chooses up, what's going to happen? And for me, it wasn't about the fear of the unknown. It was really about finances. This was a huge bill. And here I am sitting in church one morning, and this is the first time I think Rob had done a, a sermon in a long time about giving. And he says this challenge at the end, put your money where things matter. Invest your time and your money in long-term things that matter. And for me, that was it. I said, yes, we're going to go forward with this. I have a reservation about how we're going to pay for this, whether we're using all of this money wisely, but I'm going to invest in things that matter. So we went along, and about you know, three years later, last year, we're almost ready to go and pick up Leo, our son, from Bulgaria. And I'm at a corporate event, and one of our senior VPs from the corporate headquarters flies down and you know, he's getting to know people. It was a very casual setting. And he says, you know, who are you? How are you? And how many kids do you have? And we're getting ready to go on a plane to meet our son. So he says, how many kids do you have? And I go, well, you know, two-ish. And he goes, <laughs> what kind of answer is that, two-ish? I go, well, you know, it's complicated. We're, we're adopting. And I explain the story. And, and so he starts to ask more personal questions. And he says at the end, why are you adopting? And I give him this kind of vague, politically correct answer. And, you know, he's a, he's a VP. He's perceptive. He, he starts drilling down. He's like, no, you haven't answered my question. Why are you adopting? And he almost leads me to share my faith with him, a non-believer, to the point where the only thing I could say is, it is a faith thing. I want to invest my time and money in things that actually matter. And right there, he led me so I could share about Christ with him. Be bold. Charles Spurgeon, many of you may know him, 18th century English preacher that spoke a lot about evangelism and sharing your faith. He's got this very challenging quote that says this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Be ready be bold, be invitational. I've got this other friend in my life who's been struggling with infertility for about three or four years. I remember three years ago when he bought his house right in Brighton, close to where I live. He was excited. There was a, there was a big bedroom and then another room that was kind of like a playroom and he was knocking down the walls to make a nursery right off of his room. And that was three years ago. They were excited. You know, they did the bathroom on the first floor. Three years later, they don't have a baby. And they've struggled with infertility for that long. And I know it hurts him. And about two months ago, I saw Jeff and Amy, who have shared on stage last year, I think, at the tent in the summer about their story of infertility and how God worked in their lives. 
And about a month ago, a month and a half ago, there was a meeting here on a Tuesday night where we said, you know, if you struggle with this, you want to talk about this, we'd love to have you come. Come to our church and let's talk about this. Some people who have been through it are going to share their story. And there was a nice blog post on our website about it, a part of Jeff and Amy's story. And that was a Tuesday night meeting. Sunday night, I'm there shaking and shivering because I know my friend is hurting. And I have not done anything about it. And I want to tell him about this meeting, but it's, at the end of the day, it is a church meeting. So Sunday night, I muster up the courage and I sent him a text and I gave him the link to this meeting at church with a blog post. And I say, hey, this is, you know, I know you don't normally come to church, but there is a meeting on a Tuesday night and it's a friends that I know and they're talking about their story and infertility. I think you would really benefit from this. I think it'd be great for you and your wife. And I sent him that text. So five minutes later, he texts back and he goes, wow, thanks for thinking of me. I don't know what our schedule is like on Tuesday, but I'll read the blog and then I'll, I'll talk to my wife and I'll see. And that was it. That was all the courage I had. I did it. I felt like, yes, I did it. And, you know, a couple of days later, Amy, from Amy and Jeff, Amy's sister is in the gym and she's got a gym buddy and she's, you know, jogging on the treadmill and she's talking to her gym buddy. And that girl, she knew that that girl struggled with infertility as well. And she reaches out to that girl and says, hey, you know, there's a meeting at, you know, my, my sister's church on a Tuesday night. They're going to be talking about infertility. I know that you struggled with it. You should think about going. And she sends her that invite. And this girl turns to Amy's sister and says, wow, this is the third time I've gotten an invitation to this church about this meeting. My husband has a friend who's also invited him. <laughs> be bold. Be ready. Be invitational. Be persistent. Be consistent. You know, one of the things my wife does whenever we roll into church on a Sunday that I love, before we all pile out of the car and chaos, you know, consumes us and we're, you know, happy that we're only five minutes late to church, is my wife will say to my kids, when you go into class, I want you to look for somebody who's new or somebody that doesn't have a friend. I want you to go sit beside them or include them because we are includers. We can invite our neighbors. We can invite our coworkers. You might have a family member that you need to invite. Teach your kids to be invitational. And I know the challenge is great. It is a spiritually barren land out there. I recently heard a story of one of our members here, Leticia. And when I think about an impossible place for God to reach somebody and how difficult it is, and I heard her story, I wanted to share that. She grew up in communist Cuba. And if there is somewhere far away from God that you would hear something about Christ, that's where I would think of. And so I just briefly want to share with you her story because I want to encourage you. If you feel discouraged, like my neighbor is never going to buy it. They're never going to come to church. My family member is so far from God. I want you to know that God is working and he can reach people. So check out the story. I grew up in Cuba uh, when I was three years old. Uh, my grandparents left Cuba for economic reasons and also political reasons. They were not allowed to come back until nine or ten years later. 
and I did not know anything about God or Jesus. The only view that I had of God was when one of my teachers, who I respected, uh, said to another student that God did not exist. The first time I saw my grandmother, and we later we had some conversation, and in the conversation she said, God willing, I will come back next year. And I said to her, Grandma, there is no God. My grandmother just looked at me. She did not, she was not angry or upset. She just said, one day you will know that there is a God. They spoke to my parents about the possibility of coming to the United States. I guess you have to understand Cuba. All the time they thought that everybody was okay with communism. So when a lot of people were leaving, it was kind of a, a intimidation. My dad was kicked out of his job. He was an accountant. Everything belongs to the government, so it's now what am I going to do? Before we knew it, uh, there were about two, I don't know, 200, 300 people in front of our house, uh, shouting, scum, Yankee, leave Cuba or get out of Cuba, you are a traitor. Uh, we were totally afraid to come out. When we left, uh, people started throwing eggs at us. So they pushed my sister against the car and we got inside the car, started the engine and backed up. And by the grace of God, we did not hurt anyone. When we arrived at the uh, Mariel Seaport, they said to us, you have to wait for the, um, for a document that gives you permission to leave. I remember saying to myself, there has to be a God. There has to be a God that has seen this injustice. And I kept saying, there has to be a God. So we had to wait like three more years. So I remember in my bedroom, a huge armoire. I went behind that armoire and I said, God, if you're really God, I want the visa to arrive during vacation, and I want the v uh, and I want to leave before the next school year starts. If I had finished 12th grade, um, I would have become an accountant, and the Cuban government would not have left me, let me leave. I totally forgot that I had prayed that. I went on with my life. You know, the visa arrived. We left. I am in Costa Rica. It was like a memory, you know, flashed through what I had prayed to God behind that armoire. And I went like, okay, I believe. It's like God had answered my prayer, which I did not know that it was even a prayer. As I look back, I see that God's hand was uh, throughout my life. I wasn't searching for God. I really did not care about whether I knew Him or not. However, circumstances in my life brought me and opened my eyes to see who he is and uh, and I cannot tell you how everything came together I just know that God opened my eyes and I could see him you know as Letitia said in that story you may not be able to know how things come together what part you play in planting that seed but the challenge is there for us to do it, to plant that seed. Maybe somebody else water it. Maybe somebody else grows, and that faith grows. When I was looking up the forest man of India, I looked up this guy's schedule. I was curious, what kind of lifestyle does this man live, right? He's, he actually has a day job. He's a farmer. And I found out this guy wakes up at 3 a.m. He takes his bicycle, and he goes. Then he takes a boat, and then he walks. Because for him to plant a tree somewhere 
that's needed. He's got to go somewhere barren. And he's created a forest where he lives already. He has to get to the edge of his island. And it takes him two hours to get to the land that is barren. And then he rides back home, walks back home, takes his boat back home. Then he starts his day job as a farmer. What is our level of commitment? What is your level of commitment to reaching those that are spiritually barren? How far are we willing to go to plant that seed? Before we pray and I send you out, um, the most practical way of inviting somebody is going to be Easter. And so after I pray, there's going to be about a one-minute video about what's happening for Easter. So I'd love to have you stay and stick around. And also, if you're a member or a regular attender of Browncraft, you know that there's a congregational meeting as well after this service. So we'd love to have you there. Let me just pray and send us out of here and, and, and challenge us. Lord, open our eyes to what you see, to the people that need you, to the things that you want to be done. Soften our hearts, Lord. We are scared. We don't have the answers, Lord. Our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, they need you, and we are insufficient. We do not have the words, Lord, to share what you want us to share. But you've changed our lives, and that is the best evidence. That is the best proof that we can give them of what life change looks like. So, Lord, give us the courage. Help us to be ready. Help us to be bold. And help us to be an inviting people so that we can reach those in our neighborhood right here in Rochester, in Senegal, in Cuba, wherever you want us to reach people, wherever the place is spiritually barren, Lord, we want to be available to plant seeds and reach people. So give us the courage to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, stick around for this last video and then have a great Sunday.